So, my theory, at least I haven't seen anyone else who's mentioned this, I believe that the action of the point is influenced by where it sits on the course of the nerve, specifically where a nerve bifurcates into two. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. It's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we think to be true that just ain't so. The older I get, the more I think about this observation from my fellow Missourian, Mark Twain. So many of our blind spots are self-created. It's easy to trade inquiry with all of its discomfort and unsettledness for a sense of complacent certainty. It feels good. It's like getting a gold star from your first grade teacher because you came up with the right answer. And who doesn't like getting a gold star? Being right feels good. We can tell ourselves that we're intelligent, perhaps even virtuous, and a more evolved human being. I know I enjoy the taste of feeling superior. But the thing is, the world is ever malleable. There is nothing in this post-heaven world that does not come along with its opposite. And so knowledge or understanding, it has a shelf life. I'm constantly tempted to think that there are some universal principles of right and wrong, something unchanging that I can hang my hat on so I don't need to think or reconsider any of my stories of the world. Worldviews are notoriously difficult to change. It's hard to let go of solutions that, at one time, provided a workable answer. It's uncomfortable to reconsider beliefs or make room for diverging points of view. And then there is that pernicious capacity we all have for confirmation bias. Which brings me back to the brilliance of Mr. Twain's observation that it's what we think to be so that just ain't true as being the source of so much suffering. It's unsettling to take any cherished or comforting belief and inquire, is that so? It's, it very quickly leads to the questions of, how do I know that I know? And do I know that I know? Which, as unsettling as it is, can show all too clearly where I've swallowed an idea or accepted someone else's word without much investigation. I do it all the time, and what's more, I take the conclusions that I've made to divide the world into good and bad, and I'm as happy to choose sides and fight as the next guy. In fact, often enough, I'd rather fight than change my mind. Trying to understand people that trigger a disgust response in me, attempting to give some space to see the world of someone who I consider to be narrow-minded, evangelical, biased, racist, or prejudiced that is asking for Dalai Lama-level equanimity and compassion. And I fall way, way short of that. So I'm sticking with Mark Twain's recommendation that there's plenty to think that I know to be true, but it just ain't so. And where's the best place to start? Usually with the things in this world that spark my anger, frustration, or disdain. There is plenty to work on. As much as I'd like to think of myself as being open-minded, 
I'm actually not very much so, which is why it took a friend weeks, maybe months of badgering me before I took him up on the recommendation to get some acupuncture for an annoying chronic condition that I'd pretty much surrendered to. It's hard to make room for a new idea when I've got a pretty airtight story of how things already work. And so when a listener of the podcast said she had a teacher who said, there's no such thing as chi, that got my attention. Got my attention in a dismissive, what? How can you be teaching new practitioners about acupuncture and not also be talking about chi? Which then in turn raised the question of, I wonder what this person is attending to if they're not thinking about chi. And that seemed like a good jumping off point for a conversation. We'll get into this conversation with Leah Ferez in just a moment. Stay with us. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast 
share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Hey guys, it's Chloe from Radical Roots, and this may not be the shop talk you're expecting, but I'm sure hoping it's the shop talk that you need. So I've had an issue with this field for quite a while, and I think I'm going to take some time to talk about it with you all today. Now, it's not because I don't love each and every one of you, because I do. Genuinely, I think that if you are called to this medicine, you are an incredible heart-centered healer who is wise enough to understand that this is the greatest medical system in the whole world, and you are brave enough to fight against many of the societal norms. But the thing is, is that I think I think that we're all doing a disservice to our medicine. I think that we need to do better. So today I want to talk to you about the power that lies within our medicine and how we can work together to expand its reach. So first, I want you to think about why you got into Chinese medicine. So I always like to say nobody gets into Nobody gets into Chinese medicine in order to make money, right? We were all called to this profession because we wanted to help people in a radical and beautiful way. And that's what we do. We we provide our patients with a proactive medicine that allows them to build health in their daily lives. But often we get out of school and we realize that in order to actually practice this medicine, we also need to successfully run a business, (laughs) And that comes as quite a shock because, let's be honest, the schools don't exactly prepare us <laughs> for, for running a business. And the skill sets that we're taught are not really overlapping. So for many of us, it's incredibly daunting. But to me, what's most important for us all to realize is that there is truly no competition in our field. Each of us has our own unique gifts to share, and there is absolutely no shortage of need in our society. See, the decimation of our community's health is just abhorrent, and it is essential that we do everything that we can in order to turn the tide. And I believe that by working together, we can exponentially grow our impact and build health in our communities. So let's talk about how we can expand our reach. 
So what I want you to do is I want you to think about the, the population that calls to you. Who is it that truly speaks to your soul? What modality of Chinese medicine draws you in you can't get enough of? So for me, it's always been herbs. You know, I've, I've been obsessed with the idea of using Chinese herbs for public health intervention since my very first day of school. For you, it might be children's health or pain management or veterans. You know, there's really no limit to the possibilities. I mean, look at Merlin Young and Jenny Craig of Moxa Africa. I truly believe that their organization is the greatest tribute to what we can do, what the possibility of Chinese medicine is. They are literally using moxibustion to treat drug-resistant tuberculosis in Africa and North Korea. I mean, does it get any cooler than that? It's truly one of the most mind-blowing things I've ever heard. And they had no idea what they were getting into when they started. And yet they have persevered through hell and high water. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really amazing. Not only have they brought our medicine to places that have never seen it, but they have helped people who are desperately in need of affordable medicine that can be used within their homes. Not only that, they have also given us research that we can use as a field in order to support our further efforts to expand our medicine. So I want you to identify your specialty. I want you to think about how you can do a better job of educating and empowering that population. We're never going to reach our full potential as a field if we are not educating people on what we can actually do. You know, it doesn't even matter how affordable or accessible our treatments are if people have no idea how capable our medicine is. <laughs> so social media is one tool. And trust me, I hate it too. I really do. <laughs> it's so uncomfortable for me. But it's also an incredibly powerful tool if we use it correctly. And there are people out there who are absolutely desperate for the knowledge that we have as practitioners. So social media is one option. Blogs can be really wonderful also. Articles for local papers, podcasts, you know, whatever feels most comfortable to you. Start there, you know. Get together with a couple of practitioners in your area or find practitioners in your specialty in other states and work together to build an alliance and work on educational content together. But that's the key, right? It's that every little bit helps. And together we can do so much more than we can do as individual practitioners. See, the Western medical system is a model that responds to disease. But our medicine is different. It allows us to help people learn to build health. And that's exactly what our society is craving. People are desperate for true health care, for someone to sit with them and to hold space for them on their health journey. And that's exactly what we provide. As Chinese medicine practitioners, it is our obligation to do everything we can to expand the reach of this magical medicine. I truly believe that we have the potential to shift the paradigm around health from reactive to proactive, from band-aids to root causes. I believe that our field has the potential to make dramatic shifts in our society, but we can't do it alone. And we can't do it if we are all focused on our own individual practices or if we're on acupuncturists on Facebook bickering over terminology. We need to see the greater picture. 
which is expanding health in our communities. So I'm asking you, I am begging you to join me on this marketing campaign for our field. I know we're all tired. I know we're all tapped out. These past few years have hit us all so hard as small business owners and as healers. But as practitioners who have forged our way through the challenges and the hell that is Chinese medicine school, I know that you have the fortitude to give more. And that is what I'm asking of you. One of my very favorite quotes is, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. So let's work together to teach people how to use the wisdom of Chinese medicine to build health in their day-to-day lives. Let's work together to see how fucking far we can expand health in our society. Let's educate people on the many things that we can treat so that they can understand that they have genuine options for their health care. And let's expand our minds to come up with even more ways that we can use our medicine beyond the typical clinical model. Remember that there are no bounds to what our medicine can do. We are simply constrained by the limitations of our own imaginations. So join me on this journey to see just how far we can expand the reach of our medicine. Chinese medicine is a medicine of a people, a medicine of incredible strength, beauty, and wisdom. I can speak for myself and I know I can speak for you all when I say that it is one of the greatest honors of my life to be able to practice this medicine. And it is time that we work together to help more people. And there has never been a time where this has been more essential. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Thank you for your time. I am so passionate about getting our medicine out to more people. I love I love playing with business plans. (laughs) If you ever want to nerd out or need a hand with figuring out how to make a business plan work or a pep talk or anything, please sign up for a chat with me on RadicalRootsHerbs.com at the contact us area. Um, I would say email me, but I'm a disaster with my email. But either way, I'm here for you. I love you. I'm super grateful for you. And I really hope that we can work together as a field to expand our reach. Thank you. Leah Perez, welcome to Geological. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I am so happy to talk to you. I heard about you because somebody actually wrote in to the podcast about some other issues and then commenting on some things that they've been learning. They said, we've got this teacher who's been teaching us about needling and stuff, but she was saying, actually, well, she doesn't really matter. And I thought, wow, that's unusual. I think I want to talk to this person. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a um, an interesting thing to hear, I suppose, when the, the cornerstone of traditional Chinese medicine and also the, the practice of acupuncture is is qi, really, and, and yin and yang and, and all of the vital substances. So, yeah, I can imagine hearing that there's someone out there that doesn't really abide by that and follow that to do acupuncture might be an interesting thing to discuss. Exactly. So I'm thrilled to have you here. You know, the thing that I love about our profession is we've got this basic set of principles. And there's so many different ways to do this and to work with it. And so, you know, of course, when I first heard, oh, this teacher of mine said, she is no big deal, like you can ignore it. 
you know, my first thought was, well, that's a little bit sacrilegious now, isn't it? Like, how does that work? And then, <laughs> so I remember watching a, a TV show with my wife at, uh, long story short, it's a Jewish producer and his wife dies and, uh, they're having uh, what they call shiva. It's, it, it, when Jewish people die, they have this like, you know, it's, it's not a ceremony, but just like a way of transitioning through death. And you're supposed to, during shiva, cover all the mirrors. So in the show, this guy does not have his mirrors covered. And the rabbi goes, just what kind of Jew are you? And the guy says, the producer says, I'm the atheist kind. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of thought of that. It's like, okay. We usually talk about she. It's a, it's a real cornerstone. And yet within our profession, there's room for so much. And so I'd love to hear a bit about your journey, learning this. I'm sure you got all the usual fundamentals. How did you, I'd love to know a little bit about how you came to the perspective that you have. Sure. So uh, I think it's important to, to mention that I have ADHD which I was diagnosed with only uh, last year. So throughout my whole degree and, and entire life, uh, I never realized that the characteristics of myself to be, to abandon some things when I would get on a roll and, and then like I just lose interest in things. It allowed me to dip my fingers into a lot of different pies, but also the opposite end of the abandoning things is the hyper-focus. So once I would get my attention onto something, it then becomes obsessive and I have to know the answer to everything. So during my studies, what got me into acupuncture was the mysticism. My dad raised both my brother and I doing karate and, and talking about life after death and all these interesting things. So I was just geared to, to be thinking that way. So when acupuncture came along... And I'd also studied shamanism and all these different things. So when that came along, it just felt like what I needed to be doing. And I was so interested in the concept of energy moving through the channels and all these things. And to me, it was just a challenge to figure out exactly how all of that happened. And that began the journey. So I think it was in my second year of studying where things just started to not add up anymore about the diagnostic methods and also the, the, the theory. There was a lot of conflicting information. And on, on one side, that's a real beauty about the medicine is that you can approach it from different angles. But then on another side of it, especially for someone for myself who thinks like the way I do, it's, I was like, well, that's, it can't be that and that at the same time. It, it's, it can only be one thing. So it started getting me thinking about everything. And then a couple of lectures here and there had suggested that the theory that we use for diagnosis didn't actually have an influence on your points. One of them actually said, you do your theory and then your point selection. And then if your theory doesn't match the point selection, then just change the theory. And then I started going, why, why are you doing it in the beginning? So it was in my fourth year during clinic when I had finally figured out, I thought I've got the textbook diagnosis. I've got the points. I've got it. And I went to my lecturer and I showed her and she said, no, it's actually this. It's liver yang rising, whatever it was. And mine was in like another version of, of heat. But then the points were the same. So I thought, why 
have I spent all of this time doing this when I end up using the same points and have essentially the same result? So then throughout, uh, after I graduated and got into practice and treating a lot of people, I, I just started to see that I would get the same results no matter what diagnosis I use, uh, TCM diagnosis. So then I started focusing my attention on anatomy and physiology. I thought, where are these channels? I have to know who they are. So after lots of obsessive study about anatomy, it started to click and the, the resemblance and the similarities of the peripheral nerves to the actual channels. And then I thought, hang on a second, what if a couple of thousand years ago, before anatomy was fully understood, and we know that the, the ancient Chinese didn't put a lot of weight into the actual physical anatomy, there was very little dissection done because it was not respectful to your elders to actually do that to the body. That was what the Europeans did. So a lot of their understanding of the body, from what I know anyway, was done through experience of pressing and, and questioning and everything like that. So they gained uh, a concept of the internal world of the body, but only from the external. So they had an understanding of the nervous system, but from a different perspective. And if you look at the colon channel and the lung channel, they're basically running along the radial nerve. The pericardium is the, the median nerve. Sanjiao is the musculocutaneous Small intestine and heart is the ulnar nerve. Sorry, this is a very long answer <laughs> getting there. So I started thinking, okay, so what if um, acupuncture is stimulating the nervous system? And you, you read a lot of research and it's accepted that that's a physiological explanation as to how acupuncture is working. So I started basing my treatments on anatomy and physiology and using acupuncture points not because of their traditional uses, uh, and how they work with diagnosis, but rather what they are physiologically known to do based on their anatomical expression on the body, if that makes sense. So, for example, I'll use stomach 36 in most cases. And, like, no matter what it is, you could use stomach 36. And, and, and we know that if any acupuncturist had a choice of uh, only a few points to use, stomach 36 would probably be in there. If you look at the anatomy and physiology, and you have to dig and look around to start making these connections, but stomach 36 is where the common perineal nerve branches out to become the superficial and deep perineal nerve. That is a branch of the sciatic nerve. The sciatic nerve has an indirect connection to the vagus nerve, and the vagus nerve, when you stimulate it, exerts parasympathetic control over the body, reduces inflammation, corrects gastric motility, and does basically all the things that are listed in the actions of stomach 36. So that's kind of my perspective of how I treat people as opposed to being based on uh, channels and, and chi. I hadn't thought about how the nervous structure going from stomach 36 up to the sciatic nerve connect to the vagus nerve. Oh, now, now you've really got a handle on a major aspect of our neurology there. All from stomach 36. Yeah, I see it. I can see how that, how that would function. So are you familiar with Pony Chong? No. Oh, 
Okay. Pony Chong is a uh, Canadian. He's actually been on the podcast before. And he is a neurology geek, kind of like you. And he's actually been doing a bunch of dissections and like looking at points and where they're located in relation to specific nerve branches or bundles. And it just maps incredibly well. Yeah. Yep. So you're not alone in this. Yeah, I um, I have found a few practitioners out there that they incorporate the TCM theory, but they, they base it very much on the, the physical uh, structure of the body. And I, I think there's plenty of people that that do base it on the physical structure. My suspicion is a lot of people that put, who work by palpation, they put their hands on people. They're really looking to see what's going on with the physiology here and how can I affect what I'm finding under my hands with needles. And, you know, of course, we've got our theory to to lean on. I I chuckle when I hear you say, well, there's this theory and there's that theory, and they all use the same points. Like, choose the theory that makes you happy. Well, what if theory itself isn't helpful? And here you go looking at the nervous structure like that. It's uh, For me, I love that there's all these different overlays and filters, lenses, not filters, lenses that we can look through. Different lenses will bring different things into focus. So as you've been using this lens of the neurological system, are you finding any other physiological structures or systems that seem to play in as well besides the neurology? Well, we have multiple systems in the in the human body, as uh, as you know, and and acupuncturists would know, having done uh, anatomy and physiology in their uh, course. So yes, they're all important, and they are are all working in the results of acupuncture. But essentially, it all comes back to the nervous system because that's what's powering it. You can have a transplant of a lot of different organs in your body, but if you lose your brain, things tend to not work very well. So, I mean, that the heart pumps the blood around the body in the cardiovascular system, but that's being innovated by the nervous system, same as the digestive system. They're all come back to and they're all powered by the nervous system. So my perspective on the channels it if there's a physiological or a physical version of it, is that they're a manifestation of all of the body systems working as one that present as a channel. But to answer your question with uh, like specific systems, even though it's not really a system in itself, although it should be, is the the my other uh, the fascia system, which is the connective tissue onesie that we're all in. They have. So they, the people that, that research it, uh, say that it communicates in a similar way that the nervous system does, but through mechanical tension instead of electrical impulses. So when we stick the needle in and we turn it and we get the needle graft sensation, what the practitioner experiences as chi, is actually the fascia and the, the nervous tissue and, and everything else in there winding around the needle on the microscopic barbs of the needle. And then that tension 
pulls on the, the fascia system, activates the, the C-fiber nerves, which gives us a dull sensation, and then communicates that to the central nervous system. So they're all playing a part individually, but they're all like the, you can't separate any system of the body. You can only separate a system of the body to talk about what it does on its own. I like that. You can only separate a system from the body to talk about like, like what it does. It, it's so true. It, it, we are one integrated whole of stuff. And yeah, we, you can slice it in, no pun intended, different ways. And, you know, see a function here, connection there. Now, my understanding of the fascia, I'm no expert, but listening to people who are, there's evidently a piezoelectric aspect to it as well. And when you put a needle in and, and stimulate it, you're not only winding those, those uh, fascial threads, pulling on the system in a sense, but there's a little spark in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, acupuncture is a treatment of the nervous system, which in turn, because it's connected to everything else, affects the whole body. That's right. Because the needle is very small, very thin, which that's another point, just to take a tangent off for a moment, when people say, well, acupuncture, it's been practiced for thousands of years, uh, it's an ancient medicine, it has nothing to do with what they used to do because they didn't have disposable surgical steel needles back then. Been in circulation for 50 years. Yeah, well, they're little tiny needles. But evidently, you know, there was there like nine needles of, you know, antiquity or something. And some of them look more like knives or scalpels. And The thinnest one that you can see on the nine needle set looks like a knitting needle. And from what I've read, acupuncture was not something that people actually wanted to get done back then. And it was bloodletting. That was the, the origin of acupuncture. And the vessels were the blood vessels, which you felt under the fingers. The concept of chi came about because they saw water in the irrigation fields and they watched water become stagnant. And because the ancient Chinese thought, well, if the external world is the internal world as well, so the stagnation and pain we feel in our body and the blood vessels are akin to the water in the rice fields. So if we get the, the flow going, then health will ensue and, and um, we'll come after that. And I'm with you on this, by the way. You know, we talk about, oh, it's been around thousands of years. Like, well, not in the way that we practice it and not with the technology that we have. So acupuncture in the Ming Dynasty probably a very, very different experience. Yeah. And we can read all we want and look at history to get understanding, but we cannot possibly put ourselves in, into the place of that culture of people thousands of years ago. Like, we can imagine it, but we're still imagining it from our own perspective. Yes. I was having a conversation with a friend just the other day. He lives in Taiwan. He's been there a long time. And we talk about Chinese medicine a lot. He's not officially a Chinese medicine practitioner, but he's studied the hell out of it over the years. He's very, um, I'd say he has very adept level of understanding in, uh, of Chinese medicine. And one of the things that we're having this similar conversation, he was saying, yeah, you know, nothing like a book and some ideas 
in another language, a language we can't even read in another culture that's completely foreign to ours and separated by a few thousand years, we have not much of an idea, but it's a great screen for our projections. Yeah, absolutely. So there's that. And then the other thing that occurs to me, on the other side of that, there are ideas, there are methods, there's, there's a, I'm going to say a core set of principles that has come down through time and passed down through time pretty well. How people think about it now, how people thought about it then, hard to say. I'm not a sinologist and I'm certainly not a historian, but I suspect you might be able to have a conversation with someone from a few hundred years ago about things like the five phases and the six chi and stuff like that. I, I suppose you could have a conversation. Now, how you would actually use that to help people, I don't know. We can look in old books and see like herbs that used or treatments, and, and they kind of make sense to us. So there's that piece of it as well. There is a piece that comes through, but it also seems to me and it sounds like you've really stepped into this. There's a piece in our modern day, like in our each individual life, where the dang stuff has to come alive in us in some way that we can feel like, I've got a handle on this. I can use this to help people. And it sounds like you did that through your own peculiarities in the way that your attention works. You found some ways of, of looking at how this works in particular with the nervous system. And you've been able to take that and use that to good effect. Thanks. Yeah. It's, um, it comes out of my obsession to, to understand everything and even to the point where I send myself crazy doing it sometimes. Um, well, I don't think you're alone there. I think we're all looking to understand you know, I mean, there's this great question, right? Our patients ask us all the time, how does acupuncture work? We hear it all the time. It's a terrible question. Because for a lot of us, it's not so easy to explain without sounding a little kooky. So if you were explaining to a patient, and I suspect you have, how does acupuncture work? What do you tell them? I'd say that it's stimulating the nervous system. And the way it does that is, and this kind of answers your question that we got sidetracked on before because of my tangent, when you said it's essentially simulating the nervous system, it does this because the equipment that we use, the acupuncture needle, the modern one, is small enough to bypass the first response of the body's immune system, which is the skin. This is, I don't give them all this, obviously, it's an elaborated uh, version. So in the skin, we have uh, receptors that, uh, like a range of receptors that do a lot of, of things that but allow us to interact with our environment. An anatomist named Gil Headley, I was watching one of his videos recently, and he quoted someone else that said, the skin is the surface of the brain, which I thought was a really beautiful statement because it's, it's how the brain interacts with the world. Isn't that cool? <laughs> We're going to come back a second. I just want to say something real quick, because I, I had another guest on the show who suggested that the skin is kind of that Taiyang level, because it's the, you know, it's the very outside. And the Taiyang is actually associated with sensing, because the skin is all about sensing. Yeah, I, I love it. You know, we talk, again, in Chinese medicine, skin an extension of the lung. 
I can see that too. There's ways that it breathes, but the skin as an extension of the brain. Sometimes I hear something and it just rings true. I can't give you all the reasons why it would be true, but you know, it's like you hear it and you go, oh yeah, that's right. That's it. Yeah, it stopped me in my tracks when I heard it as well. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Gil Headley. He's um yeah, I saw a video of his from from decades ago of him, not me. And he's talking about the fascia. He calls it the fuzz and how the more sedentary you are, the more the fuzz starts to solidify. And that's the reason why we get tight as we get older. Yeah, so highly recommend checking him out. So the on the surface of the skin, the the receptors that send the sharp, fast signals to the nervous system, the A-delta fibers are the ones that, that let you know that something's wrong and to, you know, remove yourself from the threat. So the acupuncture needle, because it's not hypodermic, it separates the tissues rather than cutting through it on most of the time, unless you get that sharp sensation, which is inevitable, but it only happens um, a small percentage of the time, you get past that and you're essentially bypassing the defenses of the body. And then once the needle goes past the skin and then into the underlying tissues, you're now into the inner environment of the body where the nervous system speaks differently. It's not worried about external attacks anymore because all going well, there shouldn't be anything to worry about inside the body unless, uh, you know, there's an infection or something like that. So for there to be something in the body, the acupuncture needle, which is actually sterile and doesn't cause any, aside from the micro trauma of the needle going through the tissue, it's not actually a threat. So then stimulating the nerves underneath, they don't respond to pain in the same way. It's a different sensation. It's a sensation that is signaled by the C fibers, which sends dull, diffuse pain, and that's how the body talks to itself on the inside. So we're actually able to communicate with the body inside how it talks with itself. Does that make sense? I'm with you, and, I, and I'm completely fascinated as well. I want to know a little more about how the body communicates with itself on the inside and how what we're doing with a needle like rides along on that signal, so to speak. Most, like all manual therapies do affect those nerves anyway but because you don't have the barrier of the skin in between i believe that's why acupuncture is so powerful is because you, you're literally inside the body so as far as the the body communicating with itself it has you know as, as we're well aware that the nervous system and everything that goes on in the body is so insanely profound that, like we said before, we have to break everything down into minute pieces just to understand the building blocks of it. It's smarter than we are, which is why we, we've spent hundreds and thousands of years trying to figure out how it works, and we still haven't got it yet. So it's incredibly complex. It's profound. It has its own intelligence. And, well, modern acupuncture anyway... And I'm not just saying this because I'm a practitioner trying to promote the benefits of acupuncture, but there's something about acupuncture. It does things that no other treatment can do sometimes. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. 
My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Yeah, I mean, otherwise, why get out of bed and go to work doing this? If we don't see some kind of effects in being useful, like go work at a gas station or coffee shop or something, do something productive, of course we're seeing some kind of results. I agree. It, it's it's weirdly profound what can happen. And this idea, it's like we've snuck this needle through the defenses. We're now inside the body. Very intimate. You know, acupuncture is very intimate that way, isn't it? Just having this conversation in this moment. As we're talking about this, one of the things that's been coming up for me lately I mean, my ideas about this are changing all the time. And lucky for me, I get to talk to lots of interesting people. So my mind is constantly looking from new angles. I feel so lucky. But one of the things that's really had my attention is this idea of tensegrity. But the thing that's interesting about tensegrity, there's a, there's a kind of tension that our bodies need to have to function properly for things to be in place and held in place and for us to be able to like stand up against gravity for that matter. And it seems to me, in the way that we're discussing it right now with an acupuncture into the connective tissue, we're gently manipulating the tensegrity in a particular area. And I appreciate how your mind works. I, I just want you to know, and, and maybe because I'm... If I was younger, I would have probably been diagnosed with things like ADD or ADHD. I don't know. But I, I've managed to escape that. So. <laughs> they didn't put me on drugs or anything. See, I've already lost my thought here. No, it's coming back. So, again, we've got a needle. It's in the inner environment. I want to play devil's advocate. Like, okay, so what? Big deal. Like, why does it have a therapeutic effect? I get it that it's in the body. I get it that the body is interacting with it. How is that beneficial and not a threat? I get it that it's in the body, so it's probably not a threat because the body is kind of seeing it as self. But still, even if it sees it as self, like, so what? Why does it have the kind of profound impact that it has? Or maybe a better question is to say, how does it have that impact? So to say that the body doesn't recognize it as a, as a threat is probably not the, the accurate way to describe it. It's more that the needle is small enough to not be cause trauma, whereas the, the body will still register it as something that is not supposed to be there. And we can see an example of that is if you left the needles in long enough, the body would push them out 
it doesn't want it in there because it's it's not meant to be there and the body knows that so the reason why it does what it does there are multiple mechanisms that i'm aware of uh so one of the ways which it's believed that it happens like on, on a, a local effect so if you've got inflammation um in an area you stick a needle into that and then because it's a uh, something new that has happened, the body takes notice of it and then says we have to mount the defences and go to that area. And because the needle is sterile, it then focuses its attention on the issue that was there already. Like if you don't have any issues and you put a needle in your arm, you become aware of it, you'll start getting redness, you'll stimulate the uh, the tissues and you get the, the chi effect, which is the C-fibre uh, C fibers being activated, or you'll get the the channel running down the arm, which just means you've gotten close enough to the nerve to simulate it down the leg wherever you you feel the channel. Then you'll get redness, which is histamine causing vasodilation. So the body's very aware of what's going on. What happens also is that when we have something that stimulates the body we have a broad spectrum of hormones and neurotransmitters to combat the potential negative effects of that all of these things are triggered in response to most things we do dopamine is one of the big ones which is what is uh, lacking with adhd so that's why we lose interest in things because we get the dopamine and then it will last for a while, particularly when it's like when you feel like you've accomplished or you've reached a point where you think you know enough about it and that's when the dopamine stops running and then that's when you lose interest. There's no like endurance with it. So the other ones are endorphins, oxytocin. We know that's a big part with acupuncture, the release of oxytocin. So when someone has an acupuncture treatment and pretty much always the first time people have it, they get off the table and they go, I feel so different. I feel heavy, but I feel light. They can be ecstatic. They can be wiped out and sleep, have the longest sleep they've had. It's because the body's releasing waves of neurotransmitters in response to the acupuncture treatment. And while our experience of that in intensity of the chi feeling, if you will, may not be the same as we have uh, subsequent treatments because the body is is used to the experience it's still releasing these neurotransmitters so as an example there's a one of the neurotransmitters uh, dynorphin is 200 times stronger than morphine and it's believed that that's what is released when say for example we have a, a car crash and well you hear that story of people having a car crash and they pull themselves out of the car and they're not in pain, everything's fine, and it's only when they sit down and the ambulance comes they realise they've got a broken leg and their arm's facing the wrong way. That actually happened to me as with personal experience. But that's why in an occurrence where the body perceives that it's in grave danger, it releases these neurotransmitters, so we're in no pain long enough to get ourselves out of that danger. And there's no pharmaceutical that can do that. The other advantage of our neurotransmitters is there's no adverse effects. Right. The body knows how to manufacture them and then how to take them out of circulation. Yep. And it's not being delivered with a drug or anything else like that. So there's like, there's no come down. <laughs> so this, um, all of these different neurotransmitters that we have that are interacting constantly, like that they're always 
you know, hormones are, are doing everything for us. We're, you know, interacting in the body, telling one thing to secrete this, to do that, to do that, all of these cascades. So we are, with acupuncture, we're sticking your needle into those cascades, essentially, and, and interrupting that cascade for, for beneficial purposes. So uh, questions I get asked sometimes are like, oh, which point do you use to stimulate this hormone or this neurotransmitter, like for to regulate a, uh, the menstrual cycle or something like that? To which I say, it doesn't work like that. There's no endorphin point. You're putting acupuncture points in the body, and the next step is, the thing we need to remember is... The results of acupuncture are not actually because of the acupuncture. The acupuncture so much is doing, it's the body's response to the needle. Because the body is self-regulating and its goal is always homeostasis. So when you start stimulating it with a, with a non-noxious uh, stimulus, then the body will respond to that and correct itself accordingly so essentially you put the needle in and the body will know what to do but it does seem to matter where that needle goes and that's the basis of different points having different actions but essentially it all comes back to simulating the one nervous system which has all of the different effects over the rest of the body this was leading me up to this next question that's been floating around in my mind here for the past couple of minutes if I'm following correctly, what we're looking to do with acupuncture, because acupuncture does this well, is we're stimulating hormones and endorphins and all kinds of other bodily regulating, I'm going to say substances and or structures, in this case, the nervous system itself, along with its sort of chemical tide that works with it. Okay, fair enough. I get that. So, does it matter where we even put a needle? Or are there particular places, because of where they are, you were talking about stomach 36 earlier, it stimulates one set of nerves, I can't remember what they are, but I know they go up to the sciatic nerve and that touches up to the vagus nerve and through stomach 36, we can kind of touch the vagus nerve in a way. And that is a heavy hitter of regulation in the body. So when you're thinking about doing acupuncture, are you doing a differential diagnosis or are you, you know, with our theories and that kind of thing? Or are you simply looking at the nervous system and knowing that there are particular places that are going to give me a particular effect and I'm going to slice and dice and cook that soup based on on that. Does that make sense? Does that question make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I took TCM diagnosis out of my treatments a few years ago. I don't do it at all anymore. I don't do pulse or tongue. In the textbook that we learned from at Endeavour College, uh, one of them, like the first statement says, pulse taking is a subjective experience of gaining information about the body. So it's subjective, which means it's going to be different for everyone. So it's not reliable, in my opinion. And the tongue as well. So, But it's even said when you're learning it, like you can use those as uh, a final confirmation for the rest of the information that you've gotten. Yes, what I'm curious about is what it is that you're attending to. 
What are you looking at? What are you looking for? Sure. So I will do musculoskeletal assessments. Um, I'll definitely like do all the questioning and everything like that. Um, a lot of the time people will come to me with a diagnosis already. So if they've got tennis elbow, I don't really have to do anything. And if not, if they're coming to me with a, a set of symptoms, I never diagnose because I'm, I'm not a, a medical doctor and it's not within my scope. I know enough and most acupuncturists should know enough to go, well, that is probably this. These set of symptoms resemble this condition here. You may want to go to your GP and your general practitioner and get, and get that confirmed. However, I can treat that with acupuncture. So then I would base my point selection on either locally, if it's uh, musculoskeletal, re release trigger points, uh, reduce local inflammation. But then if it's a systemic condition, like digestion or menstrual um, irregularities or anything like that, most of the time I go back to the fact that the the body is essentially sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. Like that's what's governing it, which is yin and yang, if you will. And we are geared to be in sympathetic for survival. Our brain is always tipped slightly over to the sympathetic side to preserve our, our life. Most of our thoughts are negative because we're always going, what kind of a threat is this? What kind of a threat is this person or this situation to me? Yes, the body is a bit pessimistic when you come right down to it. Yeah, absolutely. It is. So knowing that stress causes inflammation or exacerbates inflammation and stress is part of sympathetic and if sympathetic is on for too long, then we don't actually have the capacity to heal properly. So the goal with most of my treatments is to get the body back into parasympathetic as much as possible and to relax the nervous system because then you sleep better, you'll digest better, everything will work more harmoniously and that's the only state we can be in when healing is properly uh, accomplished. Mm -hmm. Agreed, 100%. Uh, without that ability to fall into that rest and restore, there is no healing. It's, you know, it's a constant ongoing struggle and it's constantly going downhill a little bit, for sure. Now, maybe you could walk us through a treatment, just, you know, pull one up out of your mind. One of the big things people are often curious about is like, well, did I do the right points? Like, what are the right points for this? And of course, granted, there's not a point that's going to like, this is the fixed, you know, menstrual hormones point. At the same time, what I think I'm hearing you say is that there are places that have a big effect on our parasympathetic nervous system. And a big piece of what you want to do is engage that parasympathetic nervous system as much as possible. So how do you go looking for points? And then... I guess the next question would be what kind of stimulation do you use to get the body to pay attention? So, yes, the the location of the points does have a big influence on what happens. So, a kind of standard treatment that I will use 
is I'll take, I'll put in stomach 36 and gallbladder 34, which is where the common perineal nerve branches into the superficial and the deep perineal nerve. So they're getting two parts of the same nerve. So as I was explaining before, that simulates the vagus nerve. I put electro on those two, and then one into GB20, and then another one in, so this is called the symbaconchi here in the ear, and I'm not really concerned with which acupuncture point it is, just as long as it's in there, because that is specifically innervated by the vagus nerve. So it's like the zero point, basically? Yeah, so that's the interesting thing. You look at all those points on the ear and what they do, like to have a homunculus of a tiny fetus person in your ear, it doesn't make sense that that, that would be the reason why those points are working. Because you start looking at microsystems and you go, well, is the hand the head or is the finger the head? And then it's upside down in some other um, schools of thought. And you go, so they're all right? And you go, well, there must be something else working underneath that, right? Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. This, this is the thing you talked about earlier. We've got these different theories. They can be wildly at you know crossroads with each other. And yet they're both air quotes here right. So what else is going on? That's such a great question. What else is going on? Yeah. Well, humans suffer from pareidolia, which is seeing patterns in things. We like stories and we like mysticism. Paraidolia? Yeah, pareidolia. I've never heard that word. Well, it's like when patterns start showing up. So it's it's used as a diagnosis uh, in uh, partly of schizophrenia, where they where people who who are having episodes they see connections in things that aren't really there. But that's like an advanced version of it. We all see that because the brain is looking for patterns and to understand um, sequences throughout the day. So once it starts picking up things that are similar like an ear looking like an upside-down fetus, we start applying a story to it. So just on that note, if you take away all of the theories and all of the names of everything, like muscles don't have names, we made them all up. This thing is existing without a language that we explain it by. So if you take all of that away and you stick a needle in the body, it's still going to do the same thing, no matter what way you're looking at it. 
And that's the ultimate goal of what I want to understand. Whether you call it chi or whatever you want to call it, it's still a needle stimulating the nervous system. I'm really caught here for a moment on if we took away the story and if we took away the names of all the parts, now what have you gotten? How would you interact with that? That is a fascinating challenge. I get it that we're story-making critters. As time goes by more and more, I, I recognize that there's that really poetic idea, that poetic thought that the world is made of stories. I remember the first time I heard it, I thought, oh, that's so cool. And then time goes on and I realize, oh, shit, that's exactly what's going on here. It is made of stories. We'll kill each other over them, in fact. Yeah, and we do, still. And of course, we watch our patients come in and they've got their stories of what is going on and there's all that. But again, I, I thank you for this. This is kind of like a Zen koan. Like, what if I sat down with a person and just took away the stories and took away the names? Now, how would I work? What would I do? How would I navigate? That's a great question. How do your students do it? How do your students react to this stuff? Because I suspect, you know, they've been learning one thing and you come in, you've got this other point of view. It can be challenging for some of them. A lot of them, I think. Others are... I think I've been waiting for someone to do it, to speak like this. I think it's important for students to know that when we graduate as acupuncture practitioners, if we don't understand the anatomy and the physiology of the human body, then we can miss potential red flags. If we have someone come in that has a severe headache and their face is red, and we, all we do is say, oh, it's liver yang rising, put the points in, there you go, see you later. And we check their blood pressure and it's actually 170 over 120 and they're about to have a stroke, then we've missed an opportunity to help someone. Yes, of course, we have to recognize danger. So when we start speaking with other practitioners, like, yes, we're going to refer people to other acupuncturists, maybe, but it's unlikely. Most of the people we'd be speaking to are people who are not acupuncturists who will have no idea what we're talking about. So we have to understand the human body from a, a Western perspective in order to interact and communicate with other practitioners when we, when we refer people. And it's helpful to speak a language that they would understand. Yeah. I mean, anytime you want to speak to someone and have them understand you, hopefully using a language that makes sense to them, not ask them to come to make sense of our languaging of it. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's why there's the, the common medical language. It's based on Latin and Greek and English. It's, that's kind of become the universal language that everyone abides by. But the community of TCM practitioners, I think because on a whole we don't want to let go of the, the story, we've got something that they don't have. I've seen people after I've, like I've done presentations on this and I've gotten to the end of it and explained in great detail that the nerves are the basis of everything, they go, I'll take that away and see how I can adapt that to the channels. Like, did you listen to anything I said? Like, because people want the story. Well, it's hard to let go of any sense of understanding that we might have about something. 
especially when it's been hard won, like learning to think in a whole different way with different names and a physiology that looks different than Western physiology can be helpful too sometimes. I'm kind of back to thinking about the body with no names because there's, there's two things going on in my brain right now. One is, could I see and approach the body without naming anything, without that, that story? At the same time, I'm completely with you that it's important to know what the structures and the names of those structures and the function of those structures are. Like, you need both of them. I'm curious to know when you lean on the no story part, where does that play a role in your work? How does that help inform what you're going to do? The, the no story concept is, is applied in that you look at the consequence or the result of what happens when you put the acupuncture needle in and you just base it on that which is pretty reliable. Like, yes, we're all different and all of our bodies are vastly different even though we abide by the same anatomical framework. We all have a skeleton and hundreds of muscles and so on and so on. Uh, and we all behave differently individually, but the body itself behaves pretty similar. similarly. Like the neurotransmitters are all the same in each person. So it's safe to say that the body is going to respond exactly the same way most of the time from person to person when you put a needle in. So it's pretty reliable that you could use a standardized treatment to reduce inflammation because you're stimulating the vagus nerve for most people. And of course, it's the body's response to the treatment that lets you know, was that helpful or not? Absolutely. So as I said, I haven't done TCM diagnosis in, I, can't, I don't know how long, but I'm still getting great results and in fact, maybe better results because I know exactly what I'm trying to target with the nervous system. I know that with research that's been done, I know that electroacupuncture releases specific neuro, uh, neurotransmitters and, and hormones at different frequencies. So I, all of mine is based on, on research. And uh, I still haven't answered before uh, the question you said about where the, the importance of where you put the acupuncture needles. So my theory, at least I haven't seen anyone else who's mentioned this. I believe that the action of the point is influenced by where it sits on the course of the nerve, specifically where a nerve bifurcates into two. And if you look at all of the main big hitting acupuncture points, you'll find that they all sit near a junction of where a nerve bifurcates from its common projection into the smaller ones. And then you follow that down and you've probably seen Gunther von Hagen's presentation of the nervous system where it branches out like a tree and it goes out to the fingers and it becomes a tiny little uh, extensions of the nerves. And then you go back to TCM and it's like the stream going into the river and then into the ocean. You go, ah, right. So they got a lot of things um, profoundly accurate, even though they didn't probably know so much that it was, that's actually how it physically looked in the nervous system. They're going by feel and experience. But it's interesting that it, that it works like that because your most intense sensation at your peripheries, and then it becomes kind of vague as it goes into the, the trunk of the body. So that's why 
distal points are so effective because our hands and feet are where we interact with the world first. So they're going to have the most response from the central nervous system. And if you look at the, it's a model of the, the homunculus of where it shows which parts of the brain are most active, activated by the skin. I don't know if you've seen that. So like the hands are really big. Oh, the hands are giant. Tongue is huge. Genitals huge. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, the motor representation, so the, the part that sends out the signals, hands are still very big. The hands are the, the biggest part of the brain, take up a lot of real estate in the, in the brain. So if we put needles in it, the, the brain is going to respond big time. So that's why discipline have such a big effect on the body. It's like the further away you do it, the bigger effect it has. And I believe that's the reason why colon four, liver three, stomach 36, they're all sitting at those junctions. And that's why they have such a big effect. There's a lot of activity there. Like for one thing to split into two, that's like, that's of, of big note to the brain because it's, it's, a, it's a change in what's happening. You can really get the brain's attention with that. I'm thinking so often, think about how like America settled. You'd find towns showing up often where two rivers would come together. You know, that's just kind of how civilization moves along. Yeah, there's because there's a lot of dynamic exchange in a place like that. That's a good example of where things are repeated throughout existence. And it's not because aliens landed around the world and gave us the information to build the pyramids. It's that as humans, we think, what's the quickest way to get to the sky? Up. And what's the most logical way to build that? One step on top of the other. That's why we all built pyramids, right? So that's why we all think similarly, because we're humans and we have the same brain. So the concept of acupuncture, like you were saying, that building the towns on the rivers... Like that's what happens in our body. Everything and trees grow the same way. It's like everything branches out. Anyway, I was going to go onto a tangent of acupuncture being in like the meridians and everything like that, having a, a similar uh, analog in India with the Nadis, but that's for another time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, you've given me a lot to think about here today. This is, it's been quite a delightful look at how we're put together and, and how we can think about how acupuncture is working. And, and for some reason, it just brings kind of a smile to my face to hear you say, yeah, I've not used TCM in years and doing okay with my patients. It's, uh, my suspicion is this is kind of how our medicine grows. We're given something, we're taught something, we try to make sense of it. Maybe we can make sense of it too. And help people with it. And then sometimes there's things that just don't make sense, but it's like, I know this stuff works. Or I like the question that you bring up, like, what else is going on here? What else is going on here? So thank you for your time today and for your uh, vastly inquisitive nature that uh, gives you this perspective. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolute delight. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Chinese medicine is deliciously and annoyingly circular. What came first, the qi or the nervous system? The function or the form? Where we put our attention 
is vitally important because where the attention goes, that's where you see deeper into what is there. Leia is not the first to consider the effect of acupuncture on the nervous system. Michael Corradino in episode 146, Pony Chang in episode 121, and Jeremy Steiner way back in number 73, they all have investigated how the effects of acupuncture are mapped into the nervous system. What about you? How does your map of understanding include the nervous system or not? How are you with having your ideas of how acupuncture works being challenged? And since we're asking uncomfortable questions, just what is the answer to the question of how does acupuncture work anyway? Do you have an answer that is short, concise, and would make sense to an everyday citizen of your community? If so, write it on a postcard and send it to me. I'm still working that one out. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.